This is The Guardian. Heute teste ich, ob man den McCrispy auch leise essen kann. Also vorsichtig. Nö. Unser lautestes Chicken, der neue McCrispy mit 100% aus dem Hähnchenfilet. Jetzt nur bei McDonalds. Badabababst. It's Halloween, so if you run into a ghost or a skeleton, you probably won't bat an eyelid. After all, that's what Halloween's for, confronting the blurry line between the living and the dead. But for my guest today, exploring that murky boundary is all in a day's work. When I say traverse the threshold of death, I'm talking biologically. Their hearts have stopped, they've been in this limbo state between life and death, and then we've brought them back to life again. Sam Parnia is an associate professor at the New York University Grossman School of Medicine. He studies the science of death and resuscitation, exploring what happens to us during cardiac arrest and what we remember if we make it back. They become more lucid and their thinking becomes sharper. They describe a sense of a vast hyperconsciousness with incredible lucidity. Near-death experiences might still be viewed as pseudoscience by some, but for some, they could hold the key to a better understanding of life, death and consciousness. So is it time to radically alter our definition of death? And how might medicine change if we do? I'm The Guardian science editor, Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. What got me interested, of course, is the fact that we deal with life and death on a daily basis. Alongside his academic roles, Sam is also an intensive care doctor. And it was this work that got him thinking about the line between life and death. I came across this even as a medical student, and I was intrigued that somehow medicine and science seem to have absolved itself of any responsibility to study this in an objective manner. And, and these questions about what happens when we die had been left to personal philosophy or theology or opinions, but yet I felt that they should be studied by science. And that's what Sam has spent the last 30 years exploring. So I asked him how the science of resuscitation has changed over the course of his career. Our understanding of life and death and resuscitation by definition, which relates to that, has evolved immensely. The key thing I'd like to point out which affects resuscitation science is that our understanding of life and death, which we have inherited over thousands of years through philosophy and history, is actually outdated. In other words, we in society want to classify life and death in these black and white, like a binary fashion. We doctors will give people a death certificate when we declare them dead and we give a time of death. And that is very much antiquated because what we now understand actually is that even when we die, and by that I don't mean the process leading to death, I mean death itself. When people are dead, their body has now been discovered to not become damaged in an irreversible manner for hours of time. And so that means that you can be dead, but yet you have the potential to be brought back to life, not just for a few minutes after you've died, but for many hours in the post-mortem period. And that is the major discovery in resuscitation over the last 25 or 30 years. Take me through how you or how doctors more broadly define death, whether it has a clinical definition, because I think many people wouldn't consider someone dead if they were 
able to be resuscitated. If people can be brought back after dying, doesn't that suggest we need to change our definition of what death is, to maybe push it back a few hours until people aren't able to be brought back? So what happens when somebody dies and the heart stops is that you have no more oxygen flowing into the brain and the rest of your body and all your organs stop functioning. The brain flatlines. In other words, it does not work. And those are the three criteria that doctors still use to declare somebody dead. A lack of pulse, in other words, no heartbeat, no breathing, and a lack of function in the brain. But now if you look at this uh, from a more scientific perspective, a biological perspective, what you realize, of course, is that just because somebody's heart has stopped and they're dead, then it's not a play with words, they really are dead, that actually they're in a state of oxygen deprivation. And what happens is doctors thought that you only had five or 10 minutes of oxygen deprivation would lead to permanent brain damage. And now we've discovered that actually in people who are dead, that their organs, including the brain, can resist oxygen deprivation for many hours of time. Society still considers people who come back to have not died. But in reality, death is a biological process. Biology does not work in binary ways. Biology is always a continuum. And we don't know how far you need to go in this before, in principle, you could never come back to life again. But it's certainly not just a few minutes. It's hours, possibly longer time. And so I think we have to recognize that there is not a single biological measurement that you can make that truly defines someone who can never come back again. Sam, one of the ways in which you've explored this theory that death is not a binary thing that's on or off, but a process that could last hours is by studying what people might call near-death experiences. So before we get into the study itself, can you tell me a bit more about these experiences and why you think they might be significant? Until about 1960, when people's hearts stopped, other than a few rare cases, essentially that was it. You would not come back to life again. But what happened around that time was two things that really has changed our understanding of life and death. The first was the discovery of CPR. And the other was the discovery of life support machines, ventilators, and and the birth of intensive care medicine. These two together have ensured that millions of people who would otherwise have died are now brought back to life again. And millions of people from all over the world for years have been reporting this very interesting experience where even though from the perspective of the doctors, they had indeed been dead, yet internally they experienced their consciousness not only as not becoming annihilated, but actually they feel that they become more conscious. And so from our perspective, what we were trying to do in a research study was understand what happens to the human mind and consciousness in this state of life and death as they're being resuscitated. And for this particular study, in in the patients that survived, you wanted to find out what, if anything, they recalled, what they experienced. How were you measuring that? What we did as part of the awareness during the Sustation 2 project, which involved um, almost 570 patients across 25 hospitals, mostly in the United Kingdom, the United States, was that we incorporated, for the first time ever, real-time brain monitoring systems onto patients' heads as they were being resuscitated back to life. So imagine, this is a very tense situation. Usually it lasts 20 to 30 minutes when doctors are trying to revive people back to life again. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of chaos in the rooms. But we managed to integrate brain systems that could measure electricity and oxygen levels second by second as they were being revived. 
And what we found was that, yes, although the brain flatlined in these people, in other words, it stopped functioning, even up to an hour after they were being resuscitated, we saw the emergence of brain markers, electrical signals, signatures of consciousness. So it really validated what people have been saying for years, which is that I had consciousness while people thought I was dead. And that was a very important discovery. I'd like to hear a bit more about the the kinds of experiences people recalled. And I know it was only a percentage of those that obviously survived that were able to recall any kind of experience. But what sort of things were people saying that they experienced, that they were conscious of? When we studied these people, we found that up to 40% actually had a vague recollection of consciousness. And when you broke that down, 20% of them had these transcendent, what we call recalled experiences of death. We found that there's a very consistent narrative arc that people describe. And the arc begins with this. The person who is seemingly dead, being revived, has an inner experience where they feel like they have separated from their body and they're able to see things and hear things without any pain or distress, I have to point out. They also recognize that they have died. They say things like, I think I'm dead. I think they're trying to save me, but I feel fine. In fact, if anything, I feel more sharp, more lucid, and more conscious than I've ever done before. They then go through the second stage, which is that they will feel like they're traveling back home. And during that process, they then go through a complete reevaluation and reappraisal of their entire life. That means all their thoughts, all their memories, all their intentions and all their actions towards others are relived from their own perspective and other people's perspectives, together with the downstream consequences of what they had done. And then the next stage of this is essentially that they describe as an experience where they feel like they may have encountered a being that is full of love and kindness and compassion who guides them. And then finally, they have a realization that they need to come back because that work that they see in death they feel had not been completed. They feel that they need to come back. And when they come back to life, they're transformed in a positive way. You have a theory, or perhaps it's more some ideas, as to why people have these particular kinds of recalled experiences. Take me through those. What do you think is going on? Ordinarily, in order for us to function in life, our brain is adapted to only allow certain components to come into our consciousness. We have certain braking systems that hold everything else down. Because you can imagine if you were conscious of everything your brain was doing, you would be in so much information overload, you couldn't function at all. And so normally your brain has braking systems, inhibitory mechanisms that pull everything else down and allow you to focus on, let's say, this interview or listening to the radio or reading something. With death, because there's no more blood flow and and energy to the brain, the breaking systems are removed. And people now seem to get access to other dimensions of their brain that they could not access before. And that in turn is giving them access to new dimensions of reality, such as the entirety of their own consciousness. This idea, Sam, that people are seeing everything they have done, I struggle with because I I cannot doesn't mean it's not true, but I can't comprehend how that can be possible. How that, that would take time to perceive in a brain that is not particularly active. And that's probably the conventional view of this. So how do you explain that? How could, how could anybody possibly 
become aware of everything they had done in their life instantaneously. I think you raise a very important point, and I don't, I don't disagree with you. This whole experience is very difficult for us to explain, which is why we needed to conduct objective, unbiased scientific studies to explore what happens when we die. So I think it's important for us to be open to, to try to understand that actually we know really nothing about what causes humans to have consciousness in the first place. You know, where do our thoughts come from? How do they relate to the brain? There is no understanding of how that comes to be. And of course, in the same vein, when we come to this state of life and death, how is it that people can have an experience of a hyper-lucid, hyper-conscious state with the ability to recall their entire lives? Many people have tried to dismiss these testimonies as being a sort of a, a trick of a dying brain, a hallucination, a dream of some sort. But yet when you talk to these individuals, and we've studied thousands of cases, they're all adamant that this was more real than anything they've experienced before. Sam, you're also the director of the Human Consciousness Project at the University of Southampton here in the UK. How do these survivors of CPR that we've been talking about further our understanding of consciousness, do you think? Ultimately, the big question of who are we? What is consciousness, which is what we now call the self instead of the soul or psyche, remains. There are some scientists who believe that consciousness, the self, the psyche or the soul, is nothing more than a bodily process. The problem with it, though, is that there is no scientific evidence to date that has been able to show how any element of consciousness can arise from the brain. For example, there is no evidence to show us how brain or brain cells or millions of cells or billions of cells can produce a single thought. Yet we are all thinking conscious beings. Everything that we do is mediated by our thoughts. There are others and somewhat notable scientists, including Nobel Prize winners like Sir John Eccles, who discovered brain connections and, and won the Nobel Prize in 1963, who say that actually the mind, consciousness, and the self, who we are, is not produced by the brain, and that it's a separate, undiscovered scientific entity. Where our work becomes important is that we're able to study what happens to the brain and at the same time study what happens in consciousness when people are going through death. And the evidence that we've gathered so far suggests that when we go through death, our consciousness, the thing that makes us who we are, is not annihilated. And so therefore, it seems to support the theories that people like Plato and more recently neuroscientists like Sir John Eccles have put forward, which is that consciousness is an independent entity that we haven't yet been able to discover simply because our science hasn't progressed sufficiently to be able to measure it directly. But yet indirectly, it seems to be something that modulates the brain, modulates the body, but is not produced by it. It's necessary if you damage the brain, you lose parts of the ability to see consciousness, to detect consciousness, but it doesn't mean that consciousness is produced from the brain. Sam, huge thanks for coming on. Absolutely fascinating and can't wait to see what you're doing next on this. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Sam Parnia. We'd love to hear from you, our Science Weekly listeners, about what you want us to explore on the podcast. So if you have a question about anything from health and nutrition to quantum computing or the search for alien life, email us at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. 
And that's all from us today. This episode was produced by Josh and Chana. The sound design was by Joel Cox. And the executive producer was Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. This is The Guardian. 